Hello, Petey. Can you hear me? If you can't, you're in trouble. My culture is based on freedom and self-determination. Freedom is irrelevant. Self-determination is irrelevant. You must comply. That's right, boys. Mondo cool. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. My plans have followed a path unpredicted by the union of NAR and GDI. I want the people of America to be able to work less for the government and more for themselves. Historical Diversions History Over Drinks The Market Where people who have something to sell meet people who want something to buy. Even before the invention of currency, there was a need for such a place. From Middle Eastern bazaars to marketplaces and promenades, to farmers markets, strip malls, and outlet centers. The 20th century took these concepts to a new level, ranging from regional shopping center complexes to the massive Mall of America. There are thousands of shopping malls across the United States. It was once a symbol of prosperity in suburban sprawl and as American as apple pie. The idea of a shopping mall was a one-stop shop. You didn't have to go all the way downtown to find what you wanted to buy. And you didn't have to go to dozens of different stores. You could go to one place with all those stores in the same building. If you're someone as old as I am, you remember a time when the shopping mall was where the action was. They were glamorized in TV and movies. They appealed to families as a weekend day trip and a popular hangout for teenagers on weeknights. These malls were the place to find department or anchor stores like Sears and Macy's. There were food courts where you could find nearly every taste catered to. You could also find movie theaters, amusement parks, and even makeshift sporting arenas. Fun fact for us pro wrestling fans, on September 4th, 1995, WCW Monday Nitro's first episode was broadcast live from the rotunda of the Mall of America. Thousands of people were in attendance that night, and that must have been great for business. They can even serve as de facto town squares to the general public. In California, so long as you aren't interfering with the commercial purposes of a mall, you're able to use the area for free speech purposes on private property, which would normally not be allowed. Shopping centers, so popular in the mid to late 20th century, has found its market share under constant assault in the 21st century. Retail stores like Target and Walmart started eating away at shopping malls' bottom line. With the advent of the internet, companies like Amazon and eBay deliver products from all over the world to your front door. With streaming services like Netflix, you don't even need to leave your bedroom. This trend has been destructive to the shopping mall. Mall closures have increased since the 2008 recession and the 2019 COVID-19 pandemic response. Consumer needs have evolved. It seems today the shopping mall seems as archaic as black and white TVs, telephone booths, and cassette tapes. America's first climate-controlled indoor shopping mall was Southdale Center, which opened in 1956 in Edina, Minnesota. But 30 minutes away from there was another shopping mall in the East Metro. It was Maplewood Mall, and it still is. It's what's called a super regional mall, defined as a mall with over 800,000 square feet and serves as a dominant shopping venue for the region. This was the mall I grew up going to. 
Jeff Carver is known today as a popular trumpet player and vocalist, making his name as a solo performer, as well as being in many bands, such as Sean Johnson's big band experience, High and Mighty, and even the Minnesota Vikings band. He was also the band director for the award-winning Henry Sibley Marching Band program. His experience as a musician and educator spans decades, but in the mid-80s to late 90s, he wasn't playing trumpet or teaching students. He was in shopping centers. But he wasn't just in it. His role as marketing director at Maplewood Mall was to get people in the door and all that it entailed. His experience can't be duplicated, as the world is much different now. I wanted him to tell his story, as he's not likely to write a book anytime soon. I also wanted to know, because this was also my childhood, 50% of my DNA I got from him. But you've heard plenty from me. Let's hear from him. Without further ado, Jeff Carver. I'm really excited to talk to uh, my guest, Jeff Carver, who's sitting by me, uh, because in a lot of his experiences with shopping centers, a lot of his experience with malls, I was very, very young. And there you'll probably see a young host out there somewhere for, you know, if you have a, a smoke detector ad or there's something else, you might actually see me. I'm never going to post it. So I have you to thank for that. How's it going, Dad? It's going good. <laughs> Thanks for having me today. So to kind of start off, because you didn't plop into the middle of shopping centers, you didn't uh, just all of a sudden one day, oh, I want to be, you know, Captain Shopping Center. Uh, give us a little background. Uh, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Um, and then kind of from there, your introduction into the workforce, it wasn't shopping centers, was it? No, uh, I got to shopping centers uh, sort of uh, a roundabout way. Uh, and a lot of things happened before that. But I, I grew up in Iowa. Uh, when I was a kid, I really didn't have anything I was very good at. My dad was a cop. Uh, my mom was a teacher. And uh, finally in, I think it was ninth grade, I had decided to volunteer in track for a long distance race. And I had no clue that I could actually run a long distance. Um, I should have known that because bullies chased me for a long ways. And I did <laughs> avoid a lot of beatings, not all of them, but a lot. Um, and uh, so I became a distance runner. That was the first thing I was good at. And then uh, shortly after that, when I became a sophomore in high school, uh, probably one of the most influential te uh, people in my uh, life, a guy named Marty Crandall, was the band director. And, um, and he came to town and really inspired me. Uh, even though he wasn't a trumpet player, he was a clarinet player, and I'm a trumpet player. But uh, he was... Uh, uh, he had been a Marine, and he was a quarterback at one uh, time for the University of Nebraska. So all of a sudden, being in music wasn't kind of a sissy thing. It was a really cool thing. And so a lot of us uh, sort of rose to that occasion of, um, of being in athletics as well as being uh, in music. And uh, at that point, I, I really wanted to be uh, in music, and I really wanted to play. I wa wanted to be a professional musician, but so few people got to do that. Uh, my band director said, hey, you should become a, a, a band director 
in school and they've got great insurance and you're going to love working with kids and it's going to be a blast. And so uh, I decided that's what I was going to do. And I went to college uh, for that and uh, got certified as um, uh, in marketing, uh, uh, got married and moved to uh, Minnesota um, uh, with my music degree to start as a um, high school band director in a little town north of the Twin Cities called North Branch. And uh, even though it was a small town, they pulled from a lot of other small towns. So it was really a, a fairly large school. And, um, and then uh, I was the band director there for a, a few years. But uh, what's funny is after the first day of school, uh, I went home uh, to our apartment and uh, my... Uh, my now ex-wife, uh, her and I were sitting there and, uh, she, and she talked for about 25 minutes on how great her first day was. And uh, she asked me finally, well, how was your day? And I went, ugh, <laughs> I didn't know it was gonna be like this. Which was funny because I had so much experience in working with kids and I, and I love working with kids. And, uh, but, I didn't like the regimentation of a school. It was very non-creative. It, it still remains to this day. In fact, it's getting worse. Um, uh, very structured, um, uh, not real conducive to, to how I work. And so I didn't like the idea that I couldn't eat lunch when I wanted to eat lunch. I had to eat lunch when the program said I could eat lunch. So, which turned out to be a real deal breaker later on. Um, but uh, from that day, and I was successful in all the stuff that I did with uh, being a band director and, and things, but that didn't mean I was comfortable with it. So I was always looking for something different. And just to kind of like put things in, in a time frame, you moved up uh, to Minnesota in 1979, uh, worked at uh, North Branch first and then Henry Sibley, where you actually won... I didn't even know they had awards for marching band, but the Henry Sibley program that you were the band director for won, and I believe that was in Washington, D.C., where you guys traveled to? Yeah, Sibley had a had a history of being really strong in marching band, and they just had a real good um, uh, history, and, and they were on a little bit of the downturn. So when they hired me to come in, there was an expectation that I would get them sort of back on the map again, and the kids were all inspired to do that so uh you know within a year um we won a national championship and uh went out to washington dc the beach boys were doing the the big uh, ceremonial event and uh, that was fun but uh i had a really great group of kids i had good kids you know you have kids that are kind of forgettable most of the kids, and many of them I still keep in touch with, uh, which is really interesting because uh, now they're in their uh, 50s and sometimes their 60s. And uh, because when I started teaching at 21, my seniors were 18. So it's, uh, it's remarkable how um, as you get older and you look back, um, the kids that you thought were really cool really are cool. Yeah. And they've had great lives and they've got great families and all that kind of thing. So um, 
so when we went uh, to Washington, D.C., uh, and the reason I'm talking about this is because it plays in a little bit later, but we took a bus trip. And everybody said, no, we got to fly, we got to fly. And I thought, no, you got to do a bus. Everybody's got to do a bus. It's got to be like a two-week trip or whatever. So I scheduled all these parades. Um, the last, uh, one of the performances was at Baltimore in Baltimore for a Baltimore Orioles game, like a pre-baseball game or something. But the rest were all these parades happening along the way. And we won nine parades, all parades that we went on that trip nine including the one in washington dc so it was like a clean sweep i mean it was it was uh, a very unforgettable experience um and we flew the next year to florida and we did we won the fourth of july parade down in atlanta and uh, but i had issues with some kids and stuff and and because they had the parents had wanted the kids to have more free time well, in a lot of cases, more free time means more opportunities to um, have things happen that you aren't expecting. Yeah. And so uh, I, liked to, I liked to keep my kids really busy. And, and uh, yeah, they were tired, but they'll never forget that experience. For sure. Uh, sitting by a hotel pool, they're going to forget that. But um, winning a parade and some town in Ohio on the way to Washington, D.C. or whatever, they're going to go, wow, this is the coolest thing. So, uh, you know, to me, um, uh, that was really one of the highlights of of my teaching career was winning that, um, that uh, national championship that year. And then I had a lot of friends um, uh, win it as well. You know, Minnesota is very, very strong in marching band at least at that time. And most, a lot of times we think it's before football games, but the, the summers were, uh, uh, at that time, um, you had these bands of 150, 200 kids uh, from all these towns uh, competing, um, and it was very sophisticated. And, um, you know, we'd, we'd march all summer. My contract was an 11-month contract. I didn't have summers off. And... Uh, if anything, I worked harder in the summer than I did during the school year. And then I would have about a couple of the first two weeks of August off, and then I would start preparing for fall marching band and all my preparation for, for teaching um, and being a band, regular band director starting in the fall. So Now, especially like given, you know, you described the described like all the successes and a lot of times it's like, well, you're successful. Like, why aren't you happy? And you alluded to earlier that you hated being regimented. You hated being put into a box. And especially like given how, you know, especially like government work, you've got job stability if you can, you know, if you can manage it right. and if you, if you want it, <clears throat> what made you decide, all right, I've had enough. I need to be doing something else. Well, I had to send some kids home uh, from the trip that we took to Florida. And I hated that. I didn't want to be the policeman for kids. That wasn't, my goal was just, to, I wanted to just teach them music. I didn't want to be the policeman and the disciplinarian and all that stuff. Um, that's not kind of what I signed up. Now I should have known that was part of it, but that's not really, uh, I wasn't really into that part of the job. And then Henry Sibley, I'm trying to think of the exact time it was like, my lunchtime was like at 10.28 in the morning. 
And um, 10.28, man, I'm not even hungry. And But I'd have my 18 minutes or 20 minutes, then I had the kids until 3 o'clock or whatever. So uh, it was a very uh, hard thing for me to do. A couple things really about me, you know, number one, I don't like to be regimented. Um, and uh, because it's, it's, uh, it does put me in a box. Um, but, but <laughs> number two, um, I just don't like to, I don't like authority. I don't like to be managed. Um, because if I'm not managed, I'll do a great job. And the people who would sort of micromanage me, I usually left that job or created problems or whatever. <laughs> um, but um, for the most part, at Sibley, they let me do my thing. There were just other external factors within the, the system of the, um, of the school that, um, that, uh, that I didn't like. And I just thought uh, at that time, um, you know, your mom wasn't working outside the home so uh, once you were born, so... I had to make sure that um, that I could make more money. And as a teacher back then, you just didn't make much money, even on an 11-month contract. So it was important for me to move forward and get uh, and get more money and do stuff, something else. But also, I've always been this kind of uh, don't be satisfied, keep keep going and maybe the grass is greener on the other side but i'm not even sure it's that i almost think it's it's this need to achieve i don't know why that is it uh, you know over even being happy you need to achieve push you know get more um um accomplish more things you know beef up that resume you know for whatever and the blessing of getting older is you go well i don't think that's as important as it as it used to be, um, uh, but when you're young and you're trying to do those things. So um, when I decided I, I really wanted to leave teaching, I felt like I needed to sell everybody on the fact that I had transferable skills. I had skills that I used as a teacher that would transfer into business very easily. Now, um, some people bought that and some <laughs> people didn't, but I felt it was, uh, and it was true. A lot of the things I did, um, in order to, um, get into, um, other things. And I had a lot of people, I spent a lot of time, um, and at that time your mom was very supportive too, of me looking at other things, um, and, uh, knowing that, uh, I'd have to go help a PR person do an event and he wasn't going to pay me. Um, and I was going to be gone for, uh, a, you know, a Saturday, but, um, it would really give me something to put on a resume if I was looking for a marketing or PR type position. And so essentially knowing that you let, you ended up leaving Henry Sibley in, um, in 1986 kind of walk us through like what ended up happening to where you ended up going to what I associate with you in terms of, you know, shopping centers to Maplewood Mall. How exactly did that opportunity come about? Well, I had a friend 
Um, at that time, I was also playing in the, uh, I was playing trumpet in the Minnesota Vikings band, and I also had a band that played for, at that time, they were called the Minnesota North Stars, which was Minnesota's professional, <clears throat> excuse me, professional hockey team, uh, which is now the Wild. Uh, so, you know, I was I was doing those kind of things, and and um, so the director of the Vikings band at that point uh, worked for a company, and uh, he said, "Geez, Jeff, you should work, you know, for this company or something." So, when they set it up, I didn't really understand the payment structure, but the payment structure was not good for me. Um, it would be it would have been good it's it was a good business structure but within the confines of what we were trying to do uh it wasn't that that great so uh it was really difficult however i was working a lot uh playing a lot of gigs so um but it was uh, jameson and associates uh which uh was run by a great guy named richard jameson and uh and chuck ellidge was the um was the director of the bands. He He's now worked with uh, Joe's Music Company forever. He might still be there. I'm not sure if he's retired or not. Now he's like a yoga master. It's incredible um, uh, what he's done um, uh, within that uh, arena. But uh, so Chuck and I developed what we called a, sort of a music uh, special events type company. We were looking to build partnerships and all that stuff. And so I was there for a little bit, but then uh, they decided to restructure everything. And that meant uh, I was gone. And I think that's when Chuck left too. I'm not sure, but, uh, but then I, I left there uh, after maybe just a few months, maybe eight months or seven months or something. And then, and then I worked with NFL great, the late uh, Matt Blair for a month um, and Matt was uh, just an absolute joy to work with at that time. And uh, the problem was um, he didn't have any real business experience either. So, uh, so it was it was frustrating. But he he was really really great. And uh, he ended up uh, dying of uh, CTE. And at the towards the end, it was uh, it was pretty sad. Um, uh, but. Um, uh, I left him after about a month because um, uh, your mom's cousin, Sherry, who's passed away, um, I think she had breast cancer. And uh, so she was coming to town and, uh, and she uh, brought a friend, uh, was going to bring a friend with her who turned out to be my regional manager at a point, but I need to step back a second because there's kind of an interesting uh, feature to this. Uh, a couple years earlier, we were headed to Blue Earth to go to Thanksgiving and uh, to be with uh, um, Julie's uh, uncle and, and aunt. And we got there really late because we had a snowstorm and uh, I had to plow a road with a snowblower, which took me like eight hours. Uh, so uh, when we got there, uh, everybody had already eaten and stuff and like that. But uh, Sherry was there. Um, and we got a chance to chat. 
And I just thought she was really cool. She knew all the stuff, and she was the one that really kind of talked to me about transferable skills. Like, wow, you've got all these skills. And I was like, I do, you know. So um, so I, I liked her from the beginning and respected her and thought she was, she really had uh, uh, really good instincts and a lot of experience uh, within the, the uh, not just shopping center, but the whole retail industry. So she called and, and uh, we got together with her and uh, Judy Gray. Um, and uh, Judy uh, asked great questions. And I just thought it was a social gathering, but I think it turned out to be my first interview. Okay. Uh, it was really a, a, a great dinner, though I had so much fun. And um, uh, shortly thereafter, Judy called me and said, you know, we've got an opening for an assistant marketing director between Maplewood and Burnsville. Is that something you'd be interested in? I'm like, heck yes. And um, so they interviewed me. And I think, it's, as I recall, everything took like a long time. It was like, can we interview today? Mm. She goes, well, actually, I'm in California, so that's not going to work. Um, but I, I really w wanted to get everything moving. So uh, we... Um, we got together and the interview was great, but I thought there were a couple of questions I thought were very interesting. The first, one of the, uh, this is kind of after all the sort of details and history got done. And she said, what are you gonna do when your teacher friends are off at three o'clock and you gotta work till five? And my response was, you mean I get to go home at five? <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> because I always had a pep band or I had extra rehearsals or whatever I never got home by five I get home at eight so I like that and they're just kind of looking at me puzzled and then another person who became a huge influence on me Wendy uh, was in that interview too and at that time she was the director of uh, uh, marketing at uh, Burnsville Center in Minneapolis and uh, uh, she's now at the Galleria in Edina, Minnesota, still, um, still in the business. But Wendy goes, well, what are you gonna do in the summers when all your friends, teacher friends are off and you're having to work um, and you only get like two weeks of vacation? And I go, you mean I get two weeks of vacation? That's awesome. <laughs> Because I usually had to work all summer, and I was usually traveling around the country and doing all this and with my marching band. So the fact that I could get two weeks off, wow, what a, what a cush job this is. And I think they were shocked trying to put a high school band director in the same category as another teacher who, who does leave at three. Now, I've always had respect because my mom was an English teacher, and my mom, uh, it seems when I was a kid, uh, constantly just um, grading papers all the time because they're having to read essays and, and uh, long form answers. Uh, so they were always working. So I'm not downplaying anybody else, but I think the perception is that teachers don't work very hard. And frankly, there are some that don't, but if the ones are, that are dedicated the, to the profession, um, I don't think that the public understands at least at that time, what, uh, what all went into it. Um, so, uh, 
again, uh, the goal was to um, was to to be able to convince people of the transferable skills uh, that I've already been doing what calls in shopping centers. I just did it in another arena. And uh, so they hired me and I worked between Maplewood Mall and Burnsville Center. Okay, and so kind of from there, you're starting off as an assistant. Is the kind of perception of like assistants is that it's like, okay, you have your main person and then you have the assistant and the assistant does whatever the main person wants you to do. Was that kind of, especially like when you're starting in a totally different industry than, you know, than what you're used to, was it kind of like that or was it, was it something different? Well, it was interesting. Uh, uh, Wendy was in Burnsville and uh, uh, there's another gentleman, uh, David was in uh, Maplewood. And Wendy would give me these huge projects to do, big things. Do this, do this, do this. Where I'm going in there and rolling up my sleeves and stuff like that. And at Maplewood, I was literally addressing envelopes. Um, I was putting stamps on envelopes. I was, uh, I was uh, uh, putting itineraries for board members um, together, uh, or agen- I'm not, not itineraries, agendas for board members, and stapling them. So I was like a almost like a glorified assistant secretary mm. uh, where in Burnsville I was doing all these kind of things um, that I thought were really exciting and fun to do. And Wendy was a great teacher. I didn't really know anything about shopping centers. And right before I started, uh, she came over to our house for a couple of days and someplace I think I still have those notes. I, I don't know, but it, boy, I would sure like to see them because it would be fun to see what what were the things that stuck out that she wanted to make sure I knew before my first day. But she literally in two days taught me about the industry. Two days. In two wow. days. Yeah. And, and, and she's so smart and so, so good. I just think she's one of the best that the industry has ever had and uh, a superstar actually. Um, and continues to be that, um, you know, based on quotes I see, uh, of her in the in the uh, online and things like that about the state of the industry and stuff. Well, and speaking of kind of the state of the industry, we're talking you know, uh, when you're talking about a shopping mall. The first indoor shopping mall was Southdale Center um, in the United States. First indoor climate controlled uh, right. was 1956, and so talking Burnsville and then talking Maplewood Mall. I mean, you're talking stones throw away comparatively speaking to both of those places. Mm-hmm. Um, the state of, uh, and shopping malls, especially like back in the day, I mean, I've seen them described as, you know, de facto town squares, uh, you know, essentially the one-stop shop for, you know, everything under the sun. You're not just going there, uh, you know, even the things like that we almost like take for granted now, things like food courts where it's like, oh yeah, all these restaurants are in this one little area that like, oh, do you, does, you know, Bobby want chicken fingers? Oh, Susie wants, you know, a uh, you know, a Big Mac or something. Okay, all of those things are, you know, within, you know, steps of each other. And shopping centers in general, you're talking, you know, lots of different retailers. Um, when you went from beca- being the assistant, or I guess because when I think of you, I completely forgot about your experience at Burnsville. Mm-hmm. You had, and especially from what you were just saying, it seemed like Burnsville was going to be the one that actually uh recognized you for what you were able to do 
how did your transition into marketing director at Maplewood Mall work? Well, the the director, David, left. Um, and so uh, they said, do you want the job? And I said, yeah, and right away I got a raise. Now, when I started that job as an assistant, I was making about 6,000 less than I was making teaching, which uh, nobody was really thrilled about. <laughs> so to get this, and, and frankly, this happened uh, within just a couple of months. And uh, could have even been a shorter amount of time, I can't recall, but um, so then I got a raise. And then my secretary had been there a long time and she was making more than I was making. So they raised my salary again right away. Uh, so I would be making more than the, my assistant. So, um, and then I got a raise because I got a marketing plan passed through the, the uh, Merchants Association. Um, and I, so I got like three raises in like six months. And I gotta tell you, that was incredible um, for me because uh, I had such great support from the company. And the, the company was also, so this is a company called Pembroke Management, which was a division of corporate property investors. Uh, both no longer exist. Um, but the Pembroke Management was, um, was independent because at that time, a real estate trust company, which was corporate property investors, could not manage itself. So they had to create another management company, an independent company that worked. I mean, I'm sure they worked hand in hand. I'm not sure that what their corporate relationship was, but I mean, we knew all the CPI guys and eventually everybody became CPI. Uh, it was just, uh, it's probably too much information, but <laughs> it is for me. Um, but if uh, we, um, if we, if we look at, um, you know, I, I got their marketing plan passed and I didn't really know what I was doing. And got it passed and then really started to, to learn. And the company, like I said, the company really supported a lot of that. So uh, the International Council of Shopping Centers, which was our kind of um, umbrella organization of all the shopping centers you know, internationally, um, had all these um, different training things so you could get your certification. And uh, the company always supported sending me to those. Um, and I learned a lot, made a lot of really good friends and learned a lot of those, um, learned how kind of everybody else is doing things. And CPI, or Pembroke Management didn't do things the way that a lot of other people did um, because that was really Sherry. She didn't conform. She wasn't a, a get along person. She wanted uh, creativity was a big deal to her. And that was really lacking in a lot of places in the industry. I mean, there were great creative marketing people and doing some creative things, but that wasn't a big part of the industry, um, which I found out, you know, seriously much, much later. But um, uh, so the reason that I didn't do much with Burnsville was because that opportunity 
came up at Maplewood. Um, now, I thought eventually I would go to Burnsville, um, and that's where I would end up. Uh, but uh, that, that didn't happen. It was a funny series of events. But the industry itself, um, at that time, about the time I came on, was already starting its sort of decline. Uh, I, I liken it to sort of a, uh, a melting ice cube. Uh, all the way back to probably the middle 60s um, on down. Um, and, and, you know, again, like, for example, many of the shopping centers in um, the Twin City area were built by a company named Homart. And Homart was a subsidiary of Sears. And they would build a department store and put a huge Sears in it. That's why so many had Sears. And then Homart was sold to these other uh, um, management companies or developers or, uh, and, um, and then uh, the Sears became sort of th those big anchors because all these shopping centers need these really strong anchors. Like a JCPenney, Macy's, right. uh, Sears back in the day. Right. Like I think probably at this point, all of these are like, yeah, back in the day, these were much bigger deals yes. than, yep. uh, than than what they are now. But the term anchor stores is that it's like, well, it's like it sounds. It's like these are the big ones. And then it almost kind of seemed like uh, you had a lot of other stores that either kind of wanted to be at least in the same general vicinity that it's like, oh, you're going to Sears. Hey, you can see us too. We're just we're just a few feet down uh, down the hallway. Oh, right, exactly. And it was the anchor's job to bring in the people, and then the other stores were there to provide um, uh, alternatives or um, additional uh, uh, items that could be purchased uh, if people would just walk out of the mall. And then, of course, you want to have people stay longer, so you have a food court, you know, and. Um, and with Southdale being one of the first enclosed shopping centers, it really changed everything because before everything was open air. Well, that didn't make much sense in the Twin Cities and, and uh, a lot of these places um, in, uh, uh, in the Midwest and these where there's colder climates. Um, so uh, even, in the, even in, the, in the real hot climates, I mean, you want to be able to be comfortable while you're shopping. You don't want it to be 110 while you're walking around. Exactly. Yeah. So, so uh, that that sort of ushered in the great retail. Now, again, retail is going great in in some locations still, um, and it really depends. I think it's more upper end are successful uh, now, and a lot of these other centers that were sort of middle of the road, like these Walmart centers. Um, they're struggling, um, if, if not, uh, if not uh, totally under. And developers are, are, you know, they're doing things like, like Walmart, for example, is, built, is taking these shopping center uh, areas and demolishing the centers and putting up these large distribu uh, distribution areas uh, or locations. And so it used to be when Walmart first started, you had a product you truck that product to that store and then you truck a product to an, another Walmart, another Walmart. Well, now they have big distribution centers. So all you got to do is truck your product to the distribution center and then they truck it to the stores. So um, 
Walmart's doing that. Um, Amazon is is doing that, where they're getting rid of all the the uh, shopping because this is a, a large area, yeah, and you sure. just don't have many of those left, especially with those kinds of locations. So uh, they're doing that, and uh, I saw recently an article about a shopping center that is they had taken away the they've de- uh, uh, demoed the shopping center, and and they're really trying to put it back to how it originally the area originally looked. If it had a pond that they had they had filled up and done all that, they've <laughs> dug a new pond and they made it a park and they oh, wow. d- doing that where it's like we're going back that way rather than another retail space or retail oriented type of thing. So yeah, it it uh, when when I was there, it was just starting its downturn, but it was uh uh it was one of those things where you could tell by the hotel when you're traveling the hotels you stayed at <laughs> went from really cool this is awesome to yeah this will I guess this will do yeah, it's, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna be sleeping here and that and not much else yeah that's right um, you mentioned earlier uh, about a marketing plan and and you said even specifically that uh, and. And forgive me if I'm paraphrasing, but essentially I was like, I had no idea what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of a marketing plan, especially for uh, a shopping center, that it's not like you just have one product. It's not that you have one service. It's not that you have uh, one particular you know set of criteria. It's you almost have you know a, a ton of little entities. Uh, what exactly constitutes one a marketing plan, and then how do you even judge like? if something is really good or not? Well, the first thing you do is you do your research. Everything's based on research. So you're saying I didn't do my research. You didn't do your research. This is just a a theme here. Yeah, this is just great. Yeah, what's going on? (laughs) Um, So you start with that, and that can include uh, just uh, regular mall research, um, uh, focus groups, um, all these different kinds of... uh, research to uh, and it was like every year or two years or whatever we would do a big research thing and see where our market is and for example i was at maplewood and it was a very family oriented market it was mom dad and the kids so uh, because it was that and it was really growing in the family market and part of that was um, kind of where we lived on the south end of maplewood which was really uh, uh, growing new uh, housing developments and all that stuff, which is means young families. So a lot of kids, a lot of, um, uh, and, and a lot of money, uh, both parents working, have, having good jobs. So um, you would write your plan based on your research and you'd, you'd look at your situation, you know, some kind of a situational analysis of kind of where we are now and, where we want to go and then how we're going to get there. And, and there were different ways people approached it. I always like to try to develop the tactics like, um, like an event and then, and then create the event. So it solved a problem or helped, um, at least reduce a problem. Um, because I was really good at creating things to do. Um, and rather than say, okay, here's my problem, what can I come up with to fix the problem? 
I'd rather go, this is really a cool idea. Now, how can I manipulate that idea to fix the problem? So sort of a bottoms up approach rather than a top down. Okay. And, uh, and it seemed to work for me uh, because I like to do events and, and, uh, and more of the creative stuff. Uh, and it allowed me to do that, you know, and, and sort of manipulate the event in the way that, that, that I wanted to. Um, and, uh, and I had, I had such good people around me. Um, now again, we talk about a merchants association. I had mentioned that earlier. So what that was, was all the major anchors, um, were members they could send one member. Usually, was the store manager or, or an assistant manager. And then, um, you'd have I don't know how many seven, uh, other at large members, which were store managers or assistant managers or at, at the other locations. And you'd have monthly meetings and you'd keep notes and it was like your board of directors and they had to approve everything and, so. Uh, you didn't want, you know, you wanted to keep everybody happy. You wanted, because you're in the middle, you've got your customers, you've got your staff that you work with, you've got your corporate staff that's all over the country. Um, and, you know, you're, so you've got a lot of different publics that you're responsible uh, for. And, and uh, because of that, you have to stay, um, you have to stay sort of um, um, very narrow in your focus on on what you're doing uh, because uh, if you're ticking off your customer by trying to do something your company wants you to do, uh, that's not good. Like uh, like when we got rid of the smoking in the mall, we weren't the first mall. <laughs> I always said we were the second mall <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Uh, but I think it was, I think our theme was it's time to clear the air or something like that. Now, you'd, you'd never see smoking. In, now, if we're in Minnesota. You'd never even think about it. But at that time, uh, I, uh, I got so much hate mail and, and calls, uh, like almost, I don't remember getting death threats, but I got physical harm threats uh, because of that. And uh, I was going, you know, look, this is how everything's going. But that was a major cultural change. And it was a great example of us having to keep everybody happy. So when the company dictated something, it had to be approved by the merchants. So that was my job. And the customers had to get along, know that it was good. And that was my job to communicate with them. And so vendors and staff and all that also had to go. Around. So it was uh, constantly a balancing act. And, uh, and that's what Wendy was so good at, who it sort of taught me the business, uh, and, and is still good at, I'm sure, is being able to balance all those publics and, and get the job done. Um, so, uh, so you develop this marketing plan, it all, it'd have to be approved by the whole body of the Merchants Association. And then uh, once it got approved, then you could start implementing it. Um, and the merchants all paid dues. The department stores didn't pay dues, I don't think. Uh, they could have, but I don't think they did. 
uh, it was really the stores that paid the dues. But the anchor stores had a lot of the power because they had automatic seats on the board. They had, they didn't have to get elected or anything like that. And if your anchors weren't with you, that wasn't stuff wasn't going to happen. So, um, uh, so the marketing plan was was not just your implementation ideas, but also your um, budget. Uh, it was really important that we presented it creati creatively in order for the merchants to get behind it. So I did a lot of stuff with AV tricks and, and all that kind of stuff to make it really exciting you know, for people. We'd have parties and big uh, appetizers and drinks and all that, and sort of make it celebratory. Kind of like buttering them up a little bit that it's like, hey, you may not necessarily, like in your head, they may not necessarily like this, but if we present it in a way that, you know, hey, this is collaborative, this is, you know, something that benefits everybody, then everybody wins, right? I, I don't know if I would say buttering them up. I'm not sure I did that because uh, I was never very good at that. <laughs> um, but uh, But what we did was we made it an exciting environment, like they were something special to be part of that. Now, I don't think merchants associations even exist anymore. I think they're now, uh, they were moving towards uh, what are called promotional funds, which people just put in a, an amount of money and they gave it to the landlord. And then the landlord used that to promote the, the mall. But I'm, I'm not even sure what they do now, uh, if they, uh, or how, how all that works. But I would say probably uh, the landlord or the um, owners uh, in association with the management company decide where that uh, where that money comes from how it's spent and uh, and in in charge of collecting it well and times have certainly times have certainly changed and but one of the things that hasn't changed is holiday rushes uh, you have told me off air but uh, now hopefully we can all hear the the craziness in between you know, that Thanksgiving time and then after New Year's, that holiday, you know, craziness, um, you know, that isn't something that just popped up, you know, in the last few years for things like Black Friday. That's That's been part of the mall, you know, culture for a long time that, all right, everyone's looking to buy something. How do we get people in the door? How do we make them shop here? How do we make them shop at all these places? Uh, tell us about how working during the holidays, uh, how that worked for you, because, when you talked about your teaching career, you tended to work late, you worked all year. And uh, yeah, that I would imagine that probably prepared you or at least somewhat to probably the schedule that you ended up having to do. Well, that that's really, that's really a good question. When, when I was teaching, you know, when you're a teacher, you have your holidays off. So, uh, but I've never really been a holiday guy. Uh, so working, up until now, now I'm kind of holiday guy. Maybe that comes with age too. I don't know. And it comes with grandkids. <laughs> um, but um, at that time it was like, uh, I didn't, I didn't really care. And if there was like extra work, I always worked extra because I always thought that was important. Um, we had to have Christmas completely planned out and budgeted by July. So we submitted our plans to our company in June and they would get, they would get approved in July, and you know there'd be altered 
things that we needed to do from like middle of June to the middle of July to get that approved. But um, And if we needed extra money from the landlord, we'd sort of apply for, for that. So, uh, and then we would start in August, the middle of August, early August, uh, start to bring people in working on the trees, getting all the trees lit. And I worked with some amazing um, uh, display people who really knew a lot of tricks. Uh, but you know, when you've got like a hundred trees that you've got to light, um, you end up, and you can only use the lights one year because they're literally on 24-7 from Thanksgiving or the week before Thanksgiving until Christmas. And and the, the fact that um, that those aren't gonna those lights aren't gonna stay on forever. You have to literally go in and cut them all out. It takes days to do that to get rid of those lights. And you're always trying to keep your budget kind of low. So the display person's doing a lot of that on their own because they can't afford to bring extra people in because they're gonna need that when they do the install. And the installs were always. Um, I don't remember one that ran smoothly. <laughs> it was too much, too big, not enough people, too much work to do, not enough time, uh, trying to do it overnight. Everybody's tired. Uh, it's never enough money to hire enough people. It was just, <laughs> it was, it was just, cat. and then somehow it came together. Uh, it, it Somehow it came together. And then we would create promotional things to go with all the Christmas stuff. But like in our situation you couldn't take a vacation day from uh november and i might be wrong on this but i'm pretty sure it was november 1st through december 31st so you you had to have a well here's the deal you had to have a staff person there it was either gary the mall manager or me had to be on site every day between November 1st and December 31st. So you didn't have your weekends off anymore. You'd usually trade off or, um, you know, he'd say, I'll take this weekend and you take the next weekend. Well, then pretty soon, you know, you're working 15, 16 days straight and you're you're starting to get tired, you know, because there's a lot of people all the time. You're, you're fielding a lot of stuff from your stores. They're upset the hours are too, the holiday hours are too long. Uh, the holiday hours don't go long enough. The um, We've got theft problems. We've got all that kind of thing. And somehow it all came under your pur purview. Um, and it was could, because it was your job really to interact, to be that conduit even between the manager and the and operations people with the stores. Because they were operations people. It wasn't their job to be you know, hey, how you doing? All that stuff. But it was your job to do that, mm. to be that person to try to smooth it out. Sometimes that worked and, and sometimes it didn't. But the holidays were always super, super stressful. And I always got sick in January. I'd, I'd get pneumonia or a, a severe bronchitis or mono or something, all from being just absolutely worn down. You know, I'd make it through the holidays and I go, wow, I made it through. And then a week later, I'm like out for three weeks. <laughs> so um, the, the uh, mall, and then you're getting ready for um, 
uh, sales in January, the sidewalk sales, you know, those kind of things. So there was always some season going on and you had to stay, you're always having to stay ahead of it. And it taught me, I was a, really a procrastinator and all that stuff. And it really taught me to, to plan ahead, stay ahead of the game. Um, I didn't have those skills and I developed those skills. Um, and those served me very well, uh, even to this day of really looking ahead and seeing what I need to do six, eight months ahead. And I always prided myself on the fact that um, I could see stuff coming, mostly not good stuff, and it would allow me a chance to make a move or make a change or whatever. But, uh, but overall, uh, that business at that time was, um, was busy. We had pretty good budgets. Um, people were happy. Merchants were pretty happy. Um, and, uh, one guy used to say, and I used to go, well, I'm doing pretty good. And uh, this one guy I really respected, he ran a little shoe store in, in the mall. And he used to say, you know, the marketing director gets too much of the credit when things go good and too much of the blame when things go bad. <laughs> and so I could never... You know, I'd go, I go, what do you think of that big promotion? He goes, well, let me tell you something. And he'd tell me that again. And he must have told me that a hundred times. He goes, you know what I always say? And I, yes. Uh, but uh, overall, uh, they were sort of like my students. And again, I made lifelong friends there as well. Um, I'm just the luckiest guy because I have all these people from these different worlds that I'm part of. So I could be talking to somebody and going, hey, how was your concert last night? Talking to somebody else. Now, what store are you at again? And then somebody else, like what management company are you with now out in California? And, you know, all those different things. And to have those connections and contacts and, and not wanting anything from them, just um, being able to um, keep in touch is, is quite a blessing, I think. I knew this conversation wasn't going to fit in one part. Part two of our conversation with Jeff Carver will be released in two weeks. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. Hi everyone. Thank you for listening to Historical Diversions. If you enjoyed this episode, your feedback would be greatly appreciated. Five-star reviews, positive comments, and even just telling your friends about us helps. We're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc., but the mothership is historicaldiversions.com. You can find show notes, ways to support, and other fun info on there. Thanks again for listening. This podcast was written and produced by your host through Historical Diversions, LLC. Any other rights belong to their respective owners.